where Canterbury people are concerned. Okay, the gathering storm. So, um, so what I was hoping to do, uh, this is the after lunch session, so I want to keep this very sort of bouncing around and ch interactive and chatty. Um, what I was hoping to do was to look at, so Mike had said it'd be great if you could give an eye, give an eye to what you think um, some of the biggest theological issues heading our way are, flag what they are, and then open them up for talking about. So what I thought I'd try and do is to, to tell you what my top ten would be, and then get you at the end of each one to sort of on your tables rank how interesting or important you think that issue is for you on a scale of one to interesting. And then having done that, um, we will come back at the end and say which one of those things are uh, important enough to merit a bit more discussion as a group and on tables and so on. So I'm just intending to sketch these ten rather than to do a study on any of them because you just, after lunch, that'd be a talking for an hour and a quarter. That would kill some of you, wouldn't it, Goff? <laughs> Anybody who teaches, you teach leadership training in the after lunch slot, you think, don't talk for more than ten minutes without being quiet. So um, several risks to the list I've got. It could become a list of my personal theological hobby horses. That is always, I have the leaders right where I want them. <laughs> could be the problem. Um, or, and it could also become very cerebral and very boring, which I hope it won't. Um, so I'll sketch the issues um, under, I guess, two in, two in each of five groups. Two, two of these issues concern scripture. Two of them concern God's. Two of them are about the spirit and the church. Two of them are about salvation. And two of them are about mission. Um, and then as we and how we do that. And so as, we, as I sketch them one at a time, I'll probably get you guys to think about how interesting you think they are and what you might want to talk about. Is that okay? Right, so, number one. For issue, big issue number one, pick and choose home... Oh, no, it's all right, John. John, that's my cretinous uh, layout of the slides. It's not your fault. It's doing some funny things. No, no, no. I, I don't think I put them out in a sort of fading in nice lattice. So, sorry. You can, of course. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, number one. <laughs> Pick and choose hermeneutics. Uh, so do people understand on what basis you or your church obey some commands in the Bible and not others? And I suspect that for many, many people in our churches and for an alarming number of our leaders, because I train quite a lot of them, they don't know the answer. They know what some of the wrong answers are, but they wouldn't be able to explain it in a way that people in their church would understand. Uh, I had to in one amusing occasion, um, pushed back against the guys at one of the leadership training bases for saying that because it was the only consistent position that we actually should go to Troas to fetch Paul's parchments. And they, were, they really were defending that line, saying that's the only way we can preserve a coherent hermeneutic. We have to obey them all, or we don't obey any of them. So yes, we should be going to Troy. That's, and anyway, so imagine that wouldn't be an issue up here. That was in South London, without mentioning any particular training bases or leaders. Um, but... Um, <laughs> But the challenge, do people know on what basis you, you do and don't do certain things in the New Testament? So here's my, um, some of you might have seen me or heard me do this before, but here's a dialogue between a punter in your church and a pastor. And it goes, do we, the, part, part, the punter says, do we need to get circumcised? The pastor says, no, it's not for our day. We're not under the law. So we can break the Ten Commandments then. No, those are for our day. The law is holy, righteous, and good. What about the Sabbath? No, that one isn't. The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Right. What about head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11? Not for our day. Prophecy in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14? You bet. That's very much for our day. <laughs> Women being silent in the churches in 1 Corinthians 14? Not for our day. Tongues in 1 Corinthians 14? That is for our day. Do we obey Acts 15 when it bans sexual immorality and idolatry? Yes. What about when it bans eating black pudding and non-kosher meat? No. Do we obey 1 Timothy 2 on praying for all authority? Yes, that's for our day. What about when it talks about women not braiding hair? No, not for our day. Do we greet one another with brotherly kisses? No. Do we wash one another's feet? No. Do we have a work through hermeneutic for any of these decisions? No. That's the hypothetical dialogue. I hope it doesn't sound at all familiar, um, but it might. And that's a silly example, but the more serious example is what Steve Chalk did last month, which is to write an article saying, hey, you know, here's a very good argument for a complementarian view of eldership. But obviously, none of us do that, so obviously we should embrace gay marriage as well, which is pretty much the substance of the article. And he, by, by responding, I think, very well to the it's cultural, in many ways, I think Steve's article was very helpful, because what it did was to say, if you play the it's cultural card, it will come back and bite you on the bum. You, you can't, and it happened in our eldership recently, one of our elders, I, I said, so, so how would you explain the fact that we don't, I wasn't trying to catch him, catch him out, we were just chatting. And I said, it wasn't your son, it was one of the others. Um, and I said, on what basis do you think we don't have head coverings in the church? And he went, well, it's cultural. 
And I made such a loud noise of anguish that Graham Marsh came out of his office to find out what was going on. So now you're eliminating them one by one. It wasn't him either. And I just walked off the corner and go, ah! Just having an apoplectic fit, just thinking, if that, when people in the church say, why don't we do this? And I say, it's because it's cultural. Then what Steve Chalk is pointing out is, where on earth does that stop? What isn't cultural? The entire Bible is cultural. It's all written in a very specific context. Where do, what framework can you give me to help explain why that doesn't just completely remove the moral authority of the New Testament scriptures? So do you know on what basis people don't do that in your church? Um, and would they know? So, anyway, that was issue number one. Pick and choose how many it is. Issue number two, inerrancy. I'll, I'll, get, I'll do two and then get you to discuss them, okay? Inerrancy. What exactly do you mean when you talk about the Bible being without error, if you do? Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't use the category. Um, uh, we, as many of us would find, I wouldn't you particularly use the word, but if somebody asked me, I would say, I do believe the Bible is without error, but I don't generally talk like that because it depends. It's got some hostages to fortune. But what do you mean? What are you left affirming and denying? So scientific challenges come in. Do rabbits really chew the cud? Is the mustard seed really the smallest? Is the earth built on pillars? Do the human, all human beings share one ancestor? Is the earth 10,000 years old, etc.? Scientific ones. Archaeological ones. Did the exodus really happen? Did the conquest of Canaan really happen? When did it happen? I imagine you're going to say yes to these things, but when people come in with all this sort of archaeological gubbins, if they do, usually brighter, younger, university-educated people who are often the ones you most want to bring through into leadership and so on, then more likely to have those questions. Authorship challenges, did Moses write that? Did Isaiah write that? Daniel write that? Whoever, the pastor epistles. And harmonization challenges, so Chronicles says this, Samuel and King says that, what are you going to do with that? So all of those questions, is it something that we had this, what, uh, we had the, the not the theology forum last week, which is basically the thing that we used to call the theology forum, but then we weren't allowed because it wasn't representing anything official. So we said, hey, we won't circulate any papers. We'll just, the same in ten of us, meet together and talk about it. And one of the things we had was on this. Um, and uh, I think it was general consensus with one or two notable exceptions, general consensus that inerrancy was something we wanted to affirm. But how you articulate it in the face of those different types of challenges I've just mentioned might be a big challenge for some. So. Number two. So of those, give, give both of those two a score out of one to interesting, where interesting is ten, and one is, oh, I don't really want to talk about that. Okay, so if we were going to spend some time at the end picking up some of these, yeah, on your tables, just come up with, if you could come, come to a sort of conclusion of sorts. You guys there, how, give number one a mark out of ten for interesting. Huh? Nine. Nine. Goodness, that is, that is going very high early. Okay, so Mike Betts is worried because he's keeping the nine in his pocket for a later occasion. He's, he was worried about where this might take him if he went too high too quickly. Okay. What about you guys? An eight. Okay. Eight. Well, come on. Apostles carry authority over people and churches. Weren't you listening? Okay, we've got two eights and a nine and a, and a seven and a question mark. Okay, what about the issue number two? Too scared to say. Seven. Seven. Five. Okay, so number one's more important than number two for you. Okay, right. Now, your question was interesting, not yeah. important. Yeah. Ah, sorry, interesting. Uh, okay, interesting. okay, I may have defined my terms poorly. Interesting to talk about in this context, ergo important for our churches, that's what I mean, rather than... I mean, as in... I'm not talking about if you and I are just going to chat down a pub sometime. I mean, as in now. Like, I mean, in theory... Oh, that's interesting, it's not very important. No, I mean, as in, in this setting, what would you like to talk about? Was that, clear, was that not clear to anyone else, or was that just Morris? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I would have think we do. Right, okay. So, but that wouldn't. So this is as in, what do you want to talk about at the end of this session? Right, that's the question. And the answer is, people want to talk about one a bit more than they want to talk about two. Okay, good. That's all I needed to know so far. Right. Issue number three: Eastern or Orthodox versus Western, that is Catholic and Protestant sects of the Trinity. So many of us in the churches, broadly, I think, are 
encountering God as Father in a fresh way. There's a lot more talk about that now than there was 20 years ago, 10 years ago even. Uh, God as fundamentally love rather than fundamentally, in, his, in essence, the creator, judge, ruler. So Mike Reeves and co. And a, a lot, a much, but actually a much broader thing about the Father heart of God in, in all sorts of areas of life, which we'll come on to later as well. Theologically, that's, that's beautifully liberated. So there's much more of an emphasis on the the togetherness and the unity of the Trinity than there is on the distinct or um, functional distinctions within the Trinity. So whereas we probably would have talked a lot more in the past about with a, a more hierarchical Father, Son, Spirit, now seem, the three seem to be much more in, together in harmony and a more Eastern flavour of the Trinity is becoming, to me, becoming apparent in the way that a lot of us are articulating our concepts of God, by which I don't mean we're all into icons and all that. I'm just saying that the emphasis on equality and love versus emphasis on hierarchy and judgment model is becoming more prevalent, I would say. May, that may not be here, in which case you'll probably give it a one. But that, that would be my observation theologically within lots of different evangelical circles. Theologically, that's beautifully liberating, but soteriologically, when it comes to your doctrine of salvation, it can look like it gives you some problems with some models of the atonement. And we were just chatting at lunch, a, a few of us, about how with a more Eastern, more flat doctrine of the Trinity, with, you're still allowing for, of course, for distinctions and roles, but with more emphasis on the other-centeredness and the love of the Trinity and less on the creator-judge-ruler picture, it makes expressing some pictures of the of the atonement, particularly the forensic ones, the wrath ones, the punishment ones, the judgment ones, can make expressing that in a way that's consistent with the way you've articulated who God is quite difficult. Um, that's not impossible, and I'm, one of the things I'm looking forward to most about Mobilize is talking to Mike Reeves about how he does it, but it does emotionally can present some tensions and some challenges. So the way in which we're articulating who God is, probably, or beginning to what's happening, probably will have implications for soteriology and vice versa. So that's that, and how do we navigate that? particularly issues of things like penal substitution and so on, with that picture of God. Related to that is number four, which is the, the, the juxtaposition of these three uh, mainstays of current evangelical thinking and how they come together in a way that doesn't, even if it doesn't produce intellectual incoherence, how do, how do we avoid doing it in a way that produces emotional incoherence? Um, so there's three, what, what they are is the three ideas which I think would be widespread among churches that I've travelled to and been among in New Frontiers, um, that are difficult to keep together. Truth number one, which is becoming, as I say, more of a thing at the moment, God does pretty much everything motivated by overflowing love towards others. That It's not just that God is love, it's that God, God is other-centred and loving as part of who he is, and the Trinity is in itself an overflowing in love, other-centred union, which overflows into creation and overflows into love, and God does everything he does out of love. That statement number one. Statement number two, high capitalism, so distinguishing, I guess, between various levels of high, you know, medium grade and low grade Calvinism, but high Calvinism in the sense five point Calvinism, or what Piper would call six or eight point Calvinism, God predestines all things from the beginning of time, including sinful human choices. They're all predestined in the, in the sovereignty of God, which again would be very widespread. I'm not making a comment about whether or not any of these three are true, but I'm just saying there is a tension when expressed like this, and then eternal conscious torment view of hell. And that would also be mainstream in the evangelicalism that I'm familiar with in New Frontiers. And those three, God does everything he does out of overflowing love and also predestines the sinful choices of some human beings from before the beginning of time and then punishes them forever, eternally consciously, is emotionally difficult to hold together. Even if it's not demonstrably intellectually incoherent, it presents a lot of challenges. And obviously, even in saying that, the risk is, in, if somebody was to write a little article or a book on that, um, and give it a silly title and wear some full little like glasses, you might be accused of being a heretic. Um, but I, obviously what, what, what Rob Bell and others are doing is to say one or two of those three doesn't work. Um, and, but at the moment, nobody really wants to go for that one. But it is challenging to hold these three together. And I think there are points at which you say how... If the question was, how is it overflowingly loving and other-centred to predestine the sinful choice of a human being that will lead to their eternal conscious torment in hell, I think that question has a lot of emotional resonance. I don't think it's a, a question that can be swept on the carpet with the charge of, you must be a liberal for even asking it. I think we need to figure out what we're going to do with it. I'm glad to see, that, glad to see that's prompted laughter rather than stones. I, I wasn't, sure, wasn't sure what it would produce, but it, you see what I mean? Right? I think we just, that's, a, that's got a, a real sort of emotional resonance, and I think we would need to be honest about that, I think, if we're going to teach and handle it. So, Marks out of 10 for interesting uh, in your tables on those two issues. No, 
So, so far, we don't want to tackle two and three, but one and four, okay, uh, hovering up there, okay, good, thank you. Um, okay, um, numbers five and six, the spirit and the church, so one of them is also on this page, one's on the, on the next page. Five, the reappraisal of Ephesians 4 ministries, which I guess, to some degree, because we talked about apostles, we talked a bit about this morning, these, these next two, to me, are, are essential to reappraise, even if we land in exactly the same place we did 30 years ago on them. Um, but the reappraisal of Ephesians 4 ministries, necessary challenges to a second or third generation movement for the reasons we began to talk about with the, the you know, sort of gradual um, change in perspective. What does Ephesians 4 actually mean? when it talks about prophets, or what does the New Testament actually mean when it talks about prophesying? Do we, do we have anything, obviously, the vast majority of interpreters of Paul in the 20th century were not charismatic in the sense that we are, and would have read what prophesying was in a different way. Does that mean we reject out of hand everything they're saying, or are, is there actually something to be gained from it? Is prophesying the same sort of thing as we were doing this morning? Is that prophecy as biblically defined, or not? Um, exegetically are the prophets in Ephesians first generation ones, foundational ones, or does every church individually need to be built on the foundation of apostles and prophets? Does it need to say, actually, you're not a biblical church if you don't have apostles and prophets coming in to lay foundations, which I think is historically how I've been talking about it. But I think that needs to be subjected to exegetical critique on the grounds of, of Ephesians. Um, what does Ephesians 4 and the rest of the New Testament actually mean when it talks about evangelists? Is it actually talking about the equipping guy who comes in to help you? Or is it talking about something else? Somebody who travels around preaching the gospel themselves and pioneering it, a bit more like what, what an apostle might look like they were doing. Uh, what does Ephesians 4 actually mean when it talks about apostles, which we talked about this morning? Um, is there such a thing as a New Testament apostle who isn't a traveling gospel preacher? And if so, does that matter? So the, some of the questions we talked about this morning, really, the revisiting of Ephesians 4. And sixthly, the reappraisal of receiving the Spirit and how and when that happens, which was the subject of one of our other discussions last week in our Not the Theology Forum. Um, so questions like, theologically, have all Christians received the Spirit? If so, what do we make of Acts 8 and Acts 19? If not, what do we make of Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 12? Uh, we have that, that exegetical tension, which would not be news to, I hope, any of us. Um, but I, I don't, I feel, obviously, something in, that I've talked about and, and had discussions with a number of you in the room, but I don't, I don't feel like there's clarity yet that I've come across in the, what I might call the more sort of the normal New Frontiers view on this issue, which obviously last week we discovered was not quite as normal as I'd thought it was, but it was much more, has certainly been much more predominant from the platform in the last 20 years. But as a way of explaining the question, if, if, the, if the language of baptism and the Spirit is removed, which in all of the key passages in Acts and Paul it is, it's not in all the key passages we build the doctrine on, don't mention the word baptism, what then do you do with the language of receiving the Spirit? Has that happened to all Christians or not? And if not, what do you do with Paul? And if so, what do you do with Acts? Um, and, oh yes, and related to that, what do you do if some of those who have had a high-definition dramatic experience, which we would often have called baptism the Spirit, do not exhibit, as they often don't, the same level of zeal and evangelistic fervor as some of the people who haven't had a high-definition experience, bearing in mind that the key outworking of a lot of the Acts experiences was gospel progress. What do you do with that? Does that make you reappraise what you even think baptism in the Spirit looks like? How would you know if someone had or hadn't been? We've often, although said we don't believe it, often gone for tongues as a fairly knockdown sign that someone had. But I think that's much harder to defend than evangelistic progress in the context of Luke Acts. What do you do with that? Do we need to revisit that, etc.? Okay. So Mark out of Mark Skeller. So the first one was John. You just had back a second. Spirit and Church Ephesians for Ministries. Second one is receiving the Spirit. Again, Mark out of ten for interesting on both of those. Wilson, the fact that you're interested in those says much more about you than it does about the issues, I can tell. Um, okay, so at the moment it would look like we were heading for the pick-and-choose hermeneutics and the, the, the compatibility of God, hell, and high Calvinism and baptism in the Spirit, receiving the Spirit, etc. Okay, so far, but then we've got another four classics to go. And, um, yeah, we haven't, sorry? We haven't got, we haven't got enough time. Yeah, yeah, if we had time. Seven. The forensic relational wedge. So this is something Mike got me started on. So this is as in justification people over here, adoption people over here. 
Over, no, I know, but that's, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> That's my job, you said. Come up with a clever phrase for it. And we'll all... So anyway, courtroom images on one side. Guilty people are declared righteous. On the other hard side, family images. Servants of God become children of God. So the hypergrace thing, which I don't know how big a deal it is. In, it might be in some of the churches you're serving and not others. I just had an email just this morning from a guy in New Zealand who said, oh, I'm so, we, we in the vineyard, local vineyard guy, have got together, found this article you'd written on it. Really important because we've just got a whole bunch of people who've been bamboozled by Rob Rufus's extremer things he's saying, and because he's saying he got it all from Terry, it's making all sorts of theological problems for us. That is an expression of exactly that wedge. It's really, we've gone heavily down that you are welcomed as children and you've got all the, but then using righteousness categories to express that to the point that really grace extends to people who say, no, of course I'm not going to pray the Lord's Prayer. I've already been forgiven of all of my sins, so why would I do that? You know, and it can end up in some real well, what I hope most of us regard as silliness, certainly unorthodoxy. Um, so that sort of wedge, really, the, the, the way in which those two get separated out. This one is a bit of a curveball in the 10, because this one is one that, so far as I know, I don't think would be defended at a, an, a, a more credible level, whereas all the other 10 are. The others are all things where you can read papers and read commentaries and engage in textual battles with people if you want and figure out what they believe and why. This one is much more of a popular level phenomenon that's been a bit more bottom up rather than top down, which I think doesn't make it impossible to respond to, but it does make it harder to, you know, I've found you talking to people and they just go, well, of course the church has got it wrong for 1980 years, but the church got justification by faith wrong for 1500 years. So, or of course academics will think that because the Pharisees were the ones who killed Jesus and they were the clever clogs. You know, that sort of answer, you think, oh, I don't really know how to do this now because you've just taken away the two guns I had, you know. Um, so it, it's that sort of, that's, for me, that's almost more of a methodological challenge, which I, most of these I have written about somewhere, but that one, yeah, that's, there's methodology in there as well as the issue itself. Um, eight, the new perspective on Paul, which is the most academically slanted one of these, but arguably that might make it more important, not less. Um, which, depending on the level of familiarity in the room with it, in a nutshell, first century Jews didn't believe you could earn your way into God's good books by performing good works, and I think that is securely historically true. I don't think there's actually any debate about that amongst academics on all sides that first century Jews didn't think you were earning your way into God's good books by doing good works. But much of our preaching and teaching operates on the basis that they did, and that Paul and Jesus are correcting them for believing that, and therefore, Romans and Galatians must be responding to that problem. So when we trumpet justification by faith and not works, we may not always quite be understanding exactly what Paul means when he says that. Um, and there's obviously, at one level, there's the Tom Wright thing, where he was in, he's embracing that, going further than that, and incorporating it into a lot of popular books, that because they're well-written and theologically engaged, a lot of our people are reading, whether or not you will, as elders, agree with their conclusions. And on the other hand, you've got Reformed theologians who are responding to Wright, but often in a at a level that is not being read by the same people who are reading Tom Wright's commentaries. And some of them are being very clear about it and being affirming all the things I'm affirming. Um, Doug Moo and Tom Schreiner and Simon Gathercole and others are engaging at an academic level and saying, yes, they didn't think they could earn their way in by good works, but that doesn't matter because Paul is saying this rather instead. And you've got others who like John Piper who I think in the course of engaging with that view have either distorted it or made it quite confusing at least to understand what exactly are we disagreeing about here. Um, and I think that's made, made it challenging for the ordinary people to get, the ordinary leaders, I guess, to get their heads around that. Um, and I think probably quite a lot of New Frontiers leaders, in my experience, are a bit hazy on what it's all about. Um, and probably, I may not quite be seeing where it's going and what implications it might have. So there would be another, another potential thing to talk about. Um, so again, seven and eight, pick a number. Bearing in mind now that you've got very few bullets left in your gun and we're only going to do three, if at all, so. <laughs> I hope making you aware of the other seven will help anyway. So. Which are related to mission in terms of apologetics and the way we preach and engage with unbelievers and the culture. Number nine, theodicy and high Calvinism. So theodicy is like, whether you like the word or not, but the idea of explaining why God did certain things and how it can be good and loving for him to have done them. High Calvinism, again, five, six, eight-point Calvinism, however you count. 
Um, when it comes to theology, many people, when it's just teaching on theology, many people would teach that God ordained all things from before the beginning of time, including sinful human choices. That would be, uh, a, that would be a clear pipe of view, and probably lots and lots of us would have that. Whether we'd quite gone to the end of the line on it, we would probably believe something like that. But when it comes to apologetics, many people would say, oh, the reason God allows suffering is because he gives human beings free will and we make sinful choices. And those two are inconsistent. And we spent a think conference last year trying to get to the bottom of it, but we didn't get it right the way we structured the conference. We didn't really get the answer I think we should have got. So Calvinist theologians argue what... <laughs> as in, no, we didn't, I didn't get an answer. I don't, as in, you, did you think where there was an answer? It wasn't just that it wasn't an answer I liked. I, there wasn't an answer at all. I wanted there to be sort of some sense of, yes, you can do it this way, but I just don't feel... I, maybe I didn't brief Mike properly yet. I don't think we quite got the key answer. The key question was John Groves asked, would you say that on an alpha table? Which I think is the key. So God ordained all things from before the beginning of time, including the Holocaust. It was ordained, set in stone from before time began. Would you say that on an alpha course, for God's greater glory, that's what God did? And if you wouldn't, is that because you don't believe it, in which case your theology is actually not what you say it is? Or is it because you would believe it, but you wouldn't want to tell them that, in which case isn't there a lack of integrity in our gospel presentation and engagement with culture that's the question so and john groves asked that question i thought that's the issue that's what we need an answer to but mike i didn't quite get there and then we got sidetracked into limited atonement which is always a anyway dead end never, never mind so but that's the question how would you did god ordain the holocaust from before time began if yes what does that do for your apologetics if no what does that do for your theology and then number 10, evolution, animal oranges, which probably doesn't need me to explain what it is all about, um, ex except to say that the issue is now not so much age of the earth in the terms of the discussions. There'd be a lot of people 20 years ago would have said, oh, well, the earth might be old, the earth might be young, well, you know, we don't really know. But that's the discussion shifts when you do that. And uh, now the discussion is much more about was there such a person as Adam? Um, certainly in, uh, in America, you read the American blogs and papers and discussion, that's what they're all talking about. They've said, oh, age of the earth, that's done and dusted. We all know it's old. Uh, now we're talking about Adam. You might disagree on both, of course, but I, that, that would, is a, a significant challenge. I think it used to be okay in, in our culture, I think, to say, ah, to be honest, yeah, the earth might be old, what, what's a day? But I don't think that's going to cut it with the new next generation who will be aware that there's more problems behind that. Once you remove that one, there's another one there um, in terms of harmonizing science and scripture. So, again, whatever you do with it. So, um, final two, what answers, and Grani can play his three again. He's very welcome to. So, um, okay, so what, bearing in mind that as things stand, does any, any of your... Okay. So, um, high Calvinism, the love of God, and eternal conscious torment in hell. Um, generally speaking, of these three, how many people... I'm going to ask you to put yourself in one of four groups in your head, okay? Group number one is... I believe all three of the uh, loving father, can I just say that stands not just for God is a loving father, which we all agree, but God does everything he does motivated by overflowing lo flowing love towards another, which is a, a stronger statement than God is love, because some people, God's love would be, some, if you like, not a primary attribute, or it wouldn't be an essential attribute, it would be flow from other attributes. Whereas for some, it would be, no, that is what, that, so for Reeves, that's where God, everything he does, God is doing out of love, he's other-centered in everything he does. So, of that, and high Calvinism and eternal conscious torment, how many of you would, A, affirm all three, or number one, affirm all three of those, and it was only when I presented it the way I did just now and asked that one question that you went, that is a big problem and I've never really thought about it. So, Sam? Yeah. Just ask a question. Sure. Prior to creation, yeah. God was a God of love. Yeah. Now, within the Trinity, there was otherness. Yeah. There. Yes. Yeah, that's the basis for this for this position, is that God is. What, what, what I'm saying is, there is that's not a full expression of otherness until creation had been created. Correct. And so he was still he was still that God of love. Yes, I agree. That that's the basis for that position. I I hold that position as well. No, no, no. That's what I mean. But when set alongside, the question is, of course. How in, in, is it meaningful to speak of it being an act of overflowing love to predestine a sinful choice of a human being from before time began and then sentence them to eternal conscious suffering for it? That's, that's the question phrased in its most horrible form. Um, I'm not saying we don't have an answer. I'm just, so I would say, how many people go, I think I would have affirmed all three of those and had not really thought about how they fit together. How many people would have said, to be honest, I'm not sure that that's the best way of expressing who God is? That's view number two. Some would then challenge this one and say, actually, no, I'm not... A, high Calvinist or a federal Calvinist and some would say I don't believe in eternal conscious torment I'm an annihilationist 
Okay? Might be some of them in all four. So in other words, you believe all three of those, you, or you question number one, or you question number two, or you question number three. So who would be, I, I affirm all three of those, and either I've completely resolved that in my own head that that does make sense, and Wilson's you know, making an unnecessary problem, or I haven't really realized that I need to do some thinking. How many people are in that category? Okay. How many people are saying, actually, this is a way of describing God is not, I don't think that's the most useful way of thinking about who God is in that way. How many people would say, I'm not a high Calvinist? And how many people... Do you know what I mean by high Calvinism? Yeah? So God ordains all things. Yeah? Um, and how many people would say, I'm, I don't believe in eternal conscious torment in hell? Okay, so there's a diversity. So every, there's at least one person in all four of those groups and so on. Um, and the, yeah, the interesting thing bit... The interesting bit now... So I'll tell you where I am, and then maybe the best thing is if you poke poke holes at that and have a look. What, I'd be, what I really do want to do, I want to talk to Mike Reeves, because I think he does affirm all three of those and doesn't seem to see them as incoherent, but I'm not sure. Bolly Knight is making faces to the effect that he might not do. Ah, oh, right, okay. Because that's where I, I don't go there. So I, 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 for me, and not, I don't think logically either, so I, I think some of the texts that I've seen, so somebody like Piper would be a strong advocate of that view, and I think as he amasses the text in favour of God ordains, not just allows, God ordains all human decisions and all things, and actually the fall from before the beginning of time. I just go, I, I can't go there. Exegetically, I don't think that is what there's a handful of texts that he would often refer to, like, does evil befall a city unless the Lord has done it? And um, shall we expect good from the Lord and not trouble? Some other Old Testament texts where he would build that, and Ephesians 1, he would say, him who ordains all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. Piper will see that as evidence for God ordains every human choice and every sinful thing that happens as well as every good thing that happens. Um, and I would see that as meaning God, everything that we do, God works together to achieve his greater purpose. But that's not the same thing as saying he ordains the decision. He permits the decision and he, because he's loving, he says, you're going to be allowed to make meaningful choices. I wouldn't use the word free choices, not because of that debate, but because I don't think there is such a thing as a free choice of somebody who's enslaved to sin. But I do think Adam had free choices. Um, I, I don't think the re readers of Genesis would be expected to know that he was being constrained in that. And I, I, yeah. So that's where I would be. Um, we had an interesting paper on that last year at the Theology Forum where an annihilationist presented the case for annihilationism and came into the forum convinced of it, and we spent two days talking about it. In the end, he went, actually, I think I've changed my mind, which doesn't mean we're right. It just means that was, it, it was a lengthy, very stimulating discussion, which leaves me saying I'm... I see the case for annihilationism. I think it's very strong in the following areas. I think there's one or two texts that I just can't make fit with it, and that, for that reason I, I'm here. And I do, but only recently have realised quite how central this should be to my theology uh, would be here. But I, now I'm not saying it's impossible to hold all three, um, but I, and I, what I'd like to do is, as I say, I'd like to sit down with a high... So somebody like Piper, I don't think he would articulate this in the way that I would or Mike Reeves would or many of the Father Heart people would. I think Piper would say, God does everything for his greater glory. And that's the defining thing, and loving people is a huge part of that. But that isn't, it's not other-centred. Ultimately, it's actually God within God, delighting in being God. And for me, although I've benefited hugely from that teaching, I, I don't see it to be quite true to the way the Bible presents the Trinity. And one of the, I suppose one of the... I didn't say it on the blog, but one of the things that's happened to me through... In reading Reeves and just thinking a bit wider about some of that is I think some of the Piper statements about the glory of God being all over and above the love of God for other members of the Trinity being all I've, I've found myself affirming that um, but that isn't why I've changed, I didn't change my mind on this actually I don't think I've ever been a, a full five point Calvinist I've, I've never believed in limited atonement which means that you're always the black sheep anyway and then you start figuring out how some of the other texts work you think oh, I'm not sure I don't think I believe in double predestination although I understand why people say that's necessary consequence. I don't think, for me, it isn't. Now, we're open, this is a big theological issue, and of course I'm not attempting to persuade. I'm just attempting to, at this point, say that is a significant issue that is, merits a lot of thought. Um, but I have, there is a series of, in terms of recommended reading, there's a series of articles that Matt Hosier and I did debating really this issue, particularly some, an exchange John Piper and Roger Olson had about whether God ordains all things, including sinful human choices. Uh, which are all on the, the Think Theology blog. And to be honest, reading Olson and Piper might be a better way in, but you can get to them through what we've written. And that might be helpful looking at that. But there might be some for whom that is 
worse than useless and you, you want to throw things at me or, or just ask for another way of looking at it. Just uh, an observation really on a lot of these. Uh, I, think, I think you're right. They are amongst the top ten probably in a, in a Western culture. Mm. Uh, I think for me part of the issue is the fact that the questions have arisen in a Western culture mm. and I'm not even sure necessarily all of them are even questions Paul would have asked because they're written with a Western worldview, they're written with a logical worldview. So Paul never even raised the question of double predestination because it's not even something he would have thought about. I don't even think that would have been his, I don't even think that would have been a way of uh, thinking to provoke questions. Um, so I'm just thinking of building a healthy church culture. Do we do we feel that defending Western questions has to be done in a Western way? Or is it less than satisfactory to actually say, all of that's true, but we can't reconcile it? Is, there, is that uh, in, in, a, in our culture, to try and reach people who are postgraduate thinking logically, is it, is it sufficient to say, it's a pointless question, because it's not thinking in a biblical worldview? Well... I think it is thinking in a biblical worldview, actually. I, I, would, I would make the gap between Paul's way of thinking and ours much smaller, I think, than you, certainly on this issue, because I think that's exactly what Romans 9 is in lots of ways. I think it is an extended theodicy, albeit not for the Gentiles in general, but about Israel. And I agree with you that he doesn't say double predestination, but obviously lots of interpreters of Romans 9 have said that's exactly what he's saying. And what if God desiring to make known his wrath and his power, <coughs> pre vessels prepared for destruction? You know, I think a lot, and Piper would say, yeah, of course it's double predestination. What are you talking about? So, now, that, obviously, the fact that someone gives a wrong answer doesn't mean the question's validated. <laughs> um, but I, I don't think that's as far away from what Paul is wrestling with as all that. I, I think if Western worldview means things, something is not both true and untrue at the same time, then I don't think that's a Western thing. I think that's just a logic thing which would be true in lots of cultures too. I agree, it might not make such a big deal out of it. But I think, I think the Trinity would be a... That's, you, you, don't, you can't explain that. But I think this one... I, I'm not saying people present the question in that form, how do you hold these three together? But I think if you preach this and then also say... Say you don't even teach the ordination of all things. You just say the fact that you... Like I read on the blog just now, and I nearly blew my top because I saw... Kevin DeYoung linking to Calvin saying how you go in and deal with sick people in the church and he gives six pointers and none of them are to pray for the sick they're all to talk about the sovereignty of God and if you, you tell people tell, you say God is a loving father and everything he does is out of love for you and he has given you this sickness which I think both of those are reconcilable but quite quickly you'll find people pushing back at a very pastoral level saying well so how how is that loving and, and are you saying God has ordained that this person doesn't believe the gospel and then is sentencing them to hell anyway it, the fact that it might not be a, a phrased in quite such a logical way doesn't, I don't, for me, doesn't mean it's not a, a valid question. But the, way the way these things are articulated, though, very often pushes you in one direction or the other. Yeah. So when I, I, I could put my hand up on one and two there. I mean, when Rob Bell talks about, uh, you know, so a God who, a God who sends people to hell. So, so do we need, to, we need to be saved from God? Is, so mm. the whole rhetoric, yes, we do need to be saved from God. Yeah. So actually, Father alone is not enough. No. The loving Father, you know, someone classically said, it was the Beatles who said, um, love, love, love. Isaiah said, holy, holy, holy. You mm. know, and, and, and so Father isn't quite enough. So I could put my hand up there. But in the conversation that we're in at the moment, that kind of can th yeah. <laughs> throw me into a, a different pond. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Similarly with high Calvinism. The language of high Calvinism is just so unhelpful. Limited atonement and so on. You, it just... The, and, and I, I think I, mean, I do agree with you in terms of just the way that's, that, that, that is uh, construed metaphysically when you start to trace through what God has preordained and what he allows and so on the, uh, you know the, the whole uh, I mean the thing that Joseph and so on those, those guys were responsible for their actions and yet God intended it for mm. good at the end so mm. somehow the, the way we articulate these yeah, things yeah. can throw you one way or the other. So yes. I should put my hand up for one end, both one and two there, really. Okay. Dan. When, when you talked about um, John Piper and he would use such and such verses from the Old Testament about who 
And in the New Testament, it talks about you know two sparrows bought for a penny, and yeah. one one will die because God wills it. So that's it's in the New Testament as well. Well, it doesn't say quite that. It says, "Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one will fall to the ground apart from your Father," which I think is. I don't think says God. It, I think it's clearly the picture of when Jesus is speaking. He's speaking as if everything that's happening is under the sovereign oversight of God. That's not the, that's not in question. The question is whether it's the right way to speak about God killing the sparrow or ordaining that the sparrow fall from the sky. And and even if it were, whether you can speak that way of human volition, given that we've got choices and a right to choose that, that the sparrow doesn't have as to when he's going to die. So I think you could, for instance, affirm, yes, God decides exactly when every sparrow falls to the ground, but that's not the same as saying God ordained that Hitler was going to do this from before the beginning of time. And so, sorry, I'm, you're halfway through a question, I know. Well, but. Yeah, so, no, I guess I was, that's what I was looking for, the kind of, you're, you're finessing what exactly those verses are and aren't saying. Mm. Yeah, well, so I think the Jesus, the, the sparrows verse, to me, is in a different category at, at two levels because it's talking about sovereign superintendence rather than direct action, and it's talking about animals rather than human choices. Um, I think I think one of the clearest passages on the relationship between sovereignty and responsibility is actually Isaiah 10, which talks about the Assyrians as the rod of God's anger, who does not so intend. He thinks he's coming to give you a good kicking, but actually I'm using him for something else. Um, with, with the rod, <laughs> kind of cutting him. I'm looking at you, I don't know why. You don't carry a rod, do you? Walk softly, carry a big rod, obviously. Um, and I think that's, that's very, very useful to shed light on the relationship. But I think I would... I think for me, when he, if you get into the language of God ordained the fall from, and rendered it certain, okay, so then I've, I've got a lot more problems in it. I don't, see, I don't know where I'm getting that from in the Bible because the whole Bible's speaking in a post-lapsarian way anyway. And to me, that's where high Calvinism, to me, runs into, hits the buffers. I just say, I don't know how, I can even see how you could say of a lot of events in Israel's history. Of course God says to the prophets, the, your Jerusalem is not going to be destroyed unless the Lord has done it. But that's, Jerusalem is not, in my view, paradigmatic for necessarily for Auschwitz. It, I don't think it would have to be. I think because the way God's purposes work, of course he's more interested in the fate and the judgment of Jerusalem than he is of any number of other places. I, that, that would be the way I'd lean on, on a lot of those things. But I know, I'm, clearly, I'm only scratching the surface here, I know. So the, um, I can't remember the exact reference, but in Acts, where it talks about God. Yes. God brought all these people yeah, to yeah. Jerusalem to, against Jesus. Yeah. It's redemptive, yeah. I, I, I think to me, and this is what, and actually, when Matt Hosier and I sparked on this, because Matt would be a, a high Calvinist, so, and it, when we, the thing we were debating really was Matt was saying, similar to I think what you're saying, say, so on what basis do you know if something's redemptive or not? And my argument would be, in some of these cases, it's clearly redemptive. Of course the cross is ordained by God. That was specifically promised as part of his plan to bless the nations through Abraham's seed. But Auschwitz wasn't, and I don't think I've got a reason to jump from one to the other, whereas Matt would... The burden proof for Matt, and maybe for you, would be on the other on the foot, which is legitimate as well. So, how can you prove that they're not? At which point, I think my defence would be because I I really do find that to be very problematic in this system, and I, I, I would at that point say I don't think the fall is anywhere spoken of in scripture as being ordained or you know set in stone by God before time began. I, but even then, there's the there's the sort of lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, which I think is a mistranslation, but some people even go there and say, of course, yes, the cross, you know, and there couldn't be a cross if there wasn't a fall, so. But I, I'm very uncomfortable to go there because I don't think I've got any text and support. That would be, be me. But I hope that sort of maybe stirred up some, some thought. Pick and choose some I want to suggest that the best way of, of sort of not knocking it on the head, but I wrote a, <laughs> written a post with the title Pick and Choose Hermeneutics, the aim of which is really to say, I think there are five principles at work when we're going through the New Testament. We're going through the Bible and knowing what we obey and what we don't. And the explanation of each of those five is then given out. And actually, the blog post that went up today is about hermeneutics as well, about trying to challenge Steve Chalk's trajectory thing and the it's cultural thing and saying that's not what we do. What we do, I think, is we obey all New Testament instructions that aren't specifically stated to be for somebody not other than us. But we also translate symbols where needed. And that would be my, those two principles for me would be, would be quite key. So we are, we're assuming obedience to every New Testament imperative, unless there's a clear indication like there is for go and get my scrolls, that it's not for us. But we also symbolically translate, so there are some external symbols, like language actually, but external physical symbols, which don't carry the same meaning in our world as they did in Paul's world, 
And that's usually what people are getting for. When they say it's cultural, that's kind of what they mean. But I think it's cultural is a very bad way of saying it because lots of things are cultural. Slavery was cultural. There's, do you see what I mean? So I, I think what we need more than that is not, is it cultural or not? The whole Bible's cultural. I'm not ashamed of the gospel to the Jew first, then to the Greek. Is cultural. Paul said it that way, and he wouldn't have said it that way if he was writing today. But he was saying it then because of what he was, what he was trying to do. So it's all cultural. But I think translating symbols is a useful way of thinking about the few texts like head coverings, probably braiding hair, feet washing and brotherly kisses, which are the ones that generally put a spanner in the works for people who say, we obey the New Testament. If you say you do, that's what the smart aleck comes up with, isn't it? Ah, oh, but you don't do this one. And I'll say, yes, I do. Of course I do. So, as I have done, you know, people in our church are saying, if that guy comes to our microphone to bring a contribution with eye makeup and lipstick like that, I will not let him because he is, in my mind, he is, sub he is doing the same thing using cultural symbols that in my culture mean the same thing as man wearing long hair did in Paul's. So I wouldn't let him bring a contribution. Um, and that, that would be, and brotherly kisses, hugs and high fives and all the rest, you know, so... That, for me, I, think, I don't think the answer is very difficult. I think what needs to be done, though, is to work through the examples and check as a leadership team that you go, yeah, I think we are consistently doing all that, and if we aren't, then either we need to change our practice or write angry emails to the guy who suggested it in the first place. Um, but there was a post on Think Theology. If you just Googled Think Theology, pick and choose hermeneutics, you'd get the way I try and lay out those five principles of what we do, which is what I would say now, but it would just be ten minutes quicker not to have to spell it all out, and I, I don't, I think I made the problem difficult in the dialogue I gave, but actually I don't think it is difficult if you, if the nuance of translating symbols is taken into account, we obey all New Testament instructions, unless they're clearly not intended for us, which on occasion they're not. Um, individual instructions to greet Trophimus or whoever. You speak about the Old Testament in your paper as well. Yeah, yeah, so obviously the old, that there I talk about the, the narrative shape of scripture, the story, five-act play and so on, so yeah, I mean, I, I think most most aware Christians get that one much more easily. They say, yeah, there's a covenant thing that it is different. But then the question, they, they, if you say, why don't you circumcise people, they say, well, there is a good answer to that. But there's a, it's much harder to see what the answer is to head coverings or slavery or whatever. Toby. Pick and mix. <laughs> Pick and mix will give you <laughs> sweets. <laughs> I think if you just typed in pick and choose hermeneutics, think theology into Google, it, it should. Okay. It's been deleted. Tom's got it on his phone and Toby hasn't got it on his. That's really weird. I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, they blackball people like me. Um, no, obviously, if you don't, if you don't, I'll, if you don't find it, I'll, I'll try and navigate there. Um, and then, so and then the one on then the one on receiving the spirit, which. I think is obviously something much more for you guys all to talk about. It might just, it might be helpful to know though that once we, because this is the one we spent a day talking about. But I, I did a paper last week which we all then talked about, and at the time the paper was written to sort of really establish the, try and be, give the strongest possible case against what I would call the normal New Frontiers view, which happens to be the view that I have. So that I've held a different view on what we would call Baptism in the Spirit for the last 10, 12 years, which Mike probably remembers from way back when I was doing FP and giving him a hard time about it even then. <laughs> He's like, why did we ever let that man out? Um, but, but, have, but over time, obviously, you have a lot of conversations with people. You think, okay, now there's a nuance there I hadn't seen, and then you present something, and then they say there's a nuance there. But we had a very interesting time with Terry um, uh, six weeks ago where Nick Taylor and me and Dave Holden and Terry sat down and talked about it. And one of the things that really encouraged me was actually Terry's sort of lack of that the fact that on a number of issues that I thought would be absolutely dead set so you know you we are absolutely this is a core value to us on how we read this text and how we understand that that Terry was actually much more um he, he for instance affirmed all Christians have received the spirit a la Romans 8 he said Romans 8 shows all Christians have received the spirit and I so I didn't think I've ever heard that taught or preach and then John Hoser in the theology forum last week who was obviously representing that view so John and I are sitting next to each other discussing it and the rest of the group are all chiming in John also said I think all Christians have received the Holy Spirit a la Romans 8 and I was like I can't believe this because I've for 10 years I think I've never heard that said I've always heard it sort of if not explicitly stated implied strongly that a lot of Christians haven't received the Holy Spirit if that's what baptism spirit is and so I think I, I I'm kind of without throwing the grenade in and then just leaving it to go off what I'm now doing, because Terry and Dave both said this would be really useful, is to write a paper on, with the opposite intention. So rather than saying, here's the critique of the view, right, and to instead come in and say, here is a paper on, on which there is enormous consensus amongst us, affirming this, 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 and this, there is 
significant disagreement about these two particular, probably two issues, exegetically, i.e., is, would Acts 8 ever happen today would be a question, and some people would say, yes, it could, and some people would say, no, it couldn't, and where's the place of the laying on of hands in, in that whole thing? And one or two texts like, what's the seal of the Spirit, and what does, is, is, do Paul and Luke use the language of receiving differently from each other, which I think is, would be another key question. So in a way, although I obviously, again, frame that as an important issue to work through, and I really commend it to you as an important thing to get right, my... my my brief cards on the table thing would be that I, I don't think that the way we've normally preached on this can do justice to Pauline theology, even though I think it can look like it's the best reading of Lucan theology. I, I just don't, I think there's a lot in Paul that makes it very difficult to state if what we're saying is no, Christian, there's, there's a two stage gap in Christian experience, and you have some people who have received the Spirit and some people who haven't, I think is very, very difficult to hold with Pauline theology as a whole. But that there are ways of holding that, of, of taking that on board and preserving a view that's more like the one that Terry and John would have taught, and there's a way of holding that on board and taking a slightly different view, which is the one I would hold. And I th so I'm now going to do a, a paper which kind of tries to bring that together and say, here's the different ways of doing it, but we all agree on this, 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 and this. Forthcoming. I mean, as in I'm going to try and do that in the next month, six weeks or something. Again, you, some of you would read it and go, oh! can't believe it, it's nonsense, that's fine, but in a way, I, what I would urge, even if the whole, everyone in the room goes, I disagree strongly with this nonsense, I, I think it is something where we need to be more, it, it might only be that all, all that's needed is greater exegetical robustness on Paul, but I think when you, when you try and preach through Romans 8 verse by verse, then you, and you try and preserve the idea that there are some Christians who haven't received the spirit of adoption, I think you can unravel completely exegetically and I think Lloyd-Jones did um, on that particular point and I think that's been challenging for a lot of people who I don't, I don't know how you, do, you, how you guys do it and I don't know whether some of you have picked up on it and some of you have preached it and thought I'm not quite sure how that fits but I'm going to preach this text and then when we do Acts we'll do it this way um, but I think that at a systematic level there is an important integration that needs to happen there at which point some thorny questions need to be asked. Anyway, so that's what I would, that's where I would let that, so that's the one of these that I haven't blogged on because it's always been so I thought so wildly different from what Terry or any of the other key leaders would have wanted me to write so I never have but on talking to him I thought I'm really encouraged actually by how close we are on a lot of this stuff it was very exciting so any, any questions on either of those yeah yeah <laughs> yes. Do you think that in the current generation of sort of academic uh, evangelical theology that there is a trend towards yet more confusion, more uncertainty, more everything kind of like being questioned? Or do you think that there is signs of a little bit more conservatism perhaps? And what do you. Both. I think both. Um, there is e evangelicalism is a is a centred set, not a boundaried set, isn't it? So it's not something that you know when you cross the line into it or out of it, or at least it hasn't ever. There's never been a clear, universally agreed confessional statement. So if some is somebody a Presbyterian, well, you can tell whether they believe this, this, and this. Is someone an evangelical? There's no such thing. So I think it is increased, and the more diverse and the more cultural influences in, our, in the culture and in Christianity, the more fluffy the boundary becomes. So I think that's true. But I also think there is, in reaction to that, I think the existence of a parachurch body like the Gospel Coalition is actually indicative of the fact that in response to that, a lot of people have said, you know what, we're going to get tighter, and rather than trying to defend evangelicalism, we're, we're just not going to go there. We're going to say, okay, evangelicalism may or may not work as a label of choice for the next generation. We don't really care. I don't think they quite put it like that, but they said, well, not, that's not what we're contending for. What we would contend for is a, actually a tighter, more confessional approach. And I think both are going to go on happening. And actually, I think my, my view would be in that in my lifetime, the, what Kellison has called the mushy middle, is where I'm going to, I and the churches we are part of at least, are going to find ourselves in respect of the, the fact that we've always said we don't want confessions. And I think that being anti-confessional, not non-confessional, as in we haven't got one yet, but anti as in we don't want one, is going to become more, or less and less tenable, in my view. I'm not saying you need to have a confession. I mean, that's not, 
I'm just saying I think that over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, being a non-confessional, evangelical, but without any definitions to what that word means, is, is going to become extremely um, difficult to hold because we will want to preserve a word but without having any definition about what it, it or any other words like it should mean. And I think that sometimes we want to have our cake and eat it. And so we're relational. We're, therefore, we're not defined theologically. I don't mean that because you're called relational mission. We've all said that, right? So the smirk was unwarranted. And, and I, I didn't mean it with a smirk. I meant it genuinely. We are relational. And that's sometimes said as if it means we're relational instead of defining things by theology. And, of course, I, as a, as a thinker or theologian, would say, I don't, ever th- I don't think that's ever been true. I think there have always been boundaries of theology that no matter how much I like you as a person, I'm going to say... It doesn't matter. I'm not, I think, well, Bell was a great guy, but I still wouldn't have him preach in my church because of his theology. So there are theological boundaries. The question is, have we written them down and or have we agreed what they are or is it just something that if you step over the line you suddenly find everybody's closed ranks behind you? And I think, so for me, I would probably not see what you've just said as an either or. I, say, I think it's both. I think there will be, confessionalism will become stronger and the mushy edge will become much more diverse and, and continue to be. And the best stuff I've read on even what evangelicalism is, you know, there was even f- uh, one of those Zondervan Four Views books last year on what evangelicalism is. And it's got Al Mohler going, it's, you know, right the way through to, you know, very post-conservative liberalish guys. And I think Roger Olson, who I would disagree with on a lot of things, but he came back and said, I think really the word functions as a prototype. I think, so that's why the Billy Graham joke, an evangelicalism is somebody, an evangelicalist is someone who likes Billy Graham. And he said, I think that's, that's effectively that's as far as we can go. We really know that, that there was a, a period in about 1940s and 50s where you go John Stott, Carl Henry, Billy Graham, there's a handful of guys like that, and you say, uh, you know, the foundation of Christianity today in the States, one or two other key things like that, and you say, that's evangelicalism, and we look to that as being part of our heritage, and that's almost as much as the word can mean. But I read something recently, somebody saying, is evangelicalism going to split? And I just thought, and I think I probably tweeted him, evangelicalism, of course, it, of course it won't split. It's not been defined as a uni- unified thing in the first place. So I think, long answer, but I think both will happen, in my view. Dodge! Uh, receiving the Holy Spirit, obviously it's something perhaps in our churches we're not doing enough of, seeing people uh, encountering God and, and walking in things of the Spirit. Um, but obviously what is raised with this question teaching people uh, on what is being filled with the Spirit mm. and receiving the Spirit. Um, and, you know, are we... Is it irresponsible to be quickly laying on of hands for people to receive the Spirit? Obviously, because we're desiring for people to be filled, um, mm. but we're not equipping them with understanding the why and, and what it means. Um, is it, you know, with Alpha we might we'd do a session mm. on why, and then can we now pray? Mm. Um, whereas perhaps we we won't do that. Obviously, every meeting is not practical. Mm. You don't teach everything before you yeah. then do communion, for example. Have that together. Um, but is it? Would it? I'm trying to ask: Is it is it wrong or not wrong? But dangerous <coughs> to be more keen on the laying on of hands and, and praying for people to be filled before they're really understanding. Um, I I don't. Yeah. I don't think it is, but I, it sounds odd coming from me because I don't really go. You must understand everything before you do anything, you know that. But I, I just don't think the New Testament patterns like that. I don't. I, I don't know. It's possible that when Paul's, um, when Peter's preaching in Cornelius's house, he's expounded what the Spirit's going to do. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe. But it seems that whatever whatever he has said, the Spirit seems to fall almost irrespective of what he has and hasn't said. It, it doesn't seem to be right. Content complete. I mean, it, that might be what happened. I got, it's an argument from silence again, but. I don't get that feel, and I also I think that Christian life can't be lived without the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I, um, I think the idea of laying on of hands as part of conversion, I just I think a lot of people who, who theologically would say we believe this should be part of conversion don't necessarily do their Alpha course any differently from churches who don't, and I think that's the weakness. I think is if you otherwise you just perpetuate it for the next generation, and, and I think um, that might I don't know how that reflects churches here, but if if we are seeing people say at a baptism meeting, is there any mention of the coming of the Holy Spirit on people, or is there an alpha outside of the Holy Spirit Day context, which often, as we probably all we've all seen it, go. Some of them are shaking, but I don't know whether they have received the Spirit of promise in the in the sense that the Bible talks about it. They might have. It's difficult to know, isn't it? But almost as a sort of catechising, like early on, like have let's talk about what the Holy Spirit is and does. 
Um, but I certainly wouldn't say, unless you've understood it, I wouldn't pray for you, I, I would, which may be not what you're saying, but I, I would be saying, let's lay hands on them and let's have an experience and then explain the experience afterwards, which is in the Acts, obviously, what does seem to happen. But I, my, my opinion is that quite a lot of churches who would speak, who would, in values, would say, we've got a very strong emphasis on this, would preach about and talk about the power of the Holy Spirit descending on believers less than I would, who would have a more apparently looking conservative theology, and I think that the experience people have is based not on exactly the position you hold as much as it is on how much you emphasise it. And so if you're always talking about the power of the Holy Spirit falling on people, I think people will get that and see it's important. So, yeah, I would pray first, explain second, but explain a lot as well. It's a woolly answer, isn't it? It sounds like we've overshot, so shall we, shall we press praise? And... No, I mean, uh, thanks. Mechanisms for 